Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. I just want to, I know it's been mentioned two times, but I want to mention again the activities fair that's coming up right, or it's actually happening right after the service today. Uh, we have a few goals with that. First, uh, we see this as a great chance and opportunity uh, to connect. And so we've done things like this before, but we've never had lunch before. We thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had lunch so that we could sit around, have a chance to get to know uh, some new people, uh, maybe that we haven't met before. And so uh, I'd invite you, you know, even if you're not interested in anything in the church, maybe you're interested in someone sitting in the aisle around you, you can get a chance. That sounded kind of like, hey, if you're looking to meet someone, <laughs> that's not what I meant. But if you're looking to, you know, get to know some people, this is a good chance to do that. Also, we're hoping it's really fun. So if you can get to work on your uh, name, bingo, you can win some cool uh, mosaic prizes, and uh, that could be fun. There will also be games throughout the event. We can win more prizes. Uh, and then also, this is a chance for us to uh, build up our volunteer base. That's why it's an activities fair. There'll be information about small groups, which are mainly about connecting and growing and relationship and faith together, but also the ministries that happen in the church that help support everything that's happening here. So last week, we talked about how uh, we're an imperfect church, but there's something we think that's unique about us that is particularly compelling and helpful uh, in this particular cultural moment. Um, and if you were encouraged or inspired by that at all, we'd love to see you be a part of us living out that vision of providing a place of belonging from people, for people from all different places in life, perspectives, and backgrounds. So last week we said, who's in? And this week there's some opportunities to be in. And you can help us uh, build for the future. And this is particularly uh, important any time in the life of a community. But right now, in the past few years, we've been through a couple transitions. And we've started to put, um, we've started to hire people to do things that volunteers always did. And we want to flip that because last year, in our budget, we spent $8,000 on paying people to come in and do things like child care or uh, teach Sunday school classes and stuff like that. We want to take that $8,000 and put it into ministries that we do, and with one of the ideas being hiring another full-time staff member uh, as a pastor on our staff. So to get there, though, uh, we need buy-in. We need people to say, all right, cool, I've, I can find my place. I can be a part of that. So... If you've been coming for a long time and being a part of things but never sort of leaned in to help you make things happen, this is your time to find your place. Uh, if you've been around but got tired and that happens, this is a key time maybe to dive back in and remember, actually, hey, I did get tired, but man, wasn't it fun? I think it was fun. Wasn't it fun? Uh, so this is a chance to get back in there. And if you're new, uh, there's probably not a better way to get to know people than to work with them on projects and to help build something together. Uh, you may also notice that today, uh, all uh, of our folks from the Blaze are serving in different capacities this Sunday morning. So I think it's about nine or 10 uh, youth from our church are helping support. So you saw a couple very visible singing up here on stage, uh, out greeting, uh, working, watching the kids upstairs, all types of things. Um, and so they're basically setting the bar for us. So I would say let's back them up. Now, first of all, how awesome is it that the Blaze, our youth ministry, is so involved? But I'll give you, I'll give you just a couple examples. So we could use 
uh, two teachers for the blaze so that we can split it from being fourth to eighth to being fourth to sixth and seventh and eighth, which would be a big difference uh, for our student population. We could also use one more teacher upstairs in the kids' ministry to help that ministry run and give our volunteers the space they need to do it the best way that they can without getting tired. And there are lots of other opportunities. So this is my pitch. Stay around to get to know people, have some fun, eat some food, but also take a look at ways that you can get involved because uh, we're convinced that we're, we're not everything, but we do have a very specific role in this city, and we're building towards that, and you can be a part of that. That's my pitch, all right? Who's going to stay around? All right. All right. I see uh, 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 most people are staying. That's great. All right. So some of you may know that spiritual vitality is our particular focus this ministry year. Uh, And this ministry year runs from September through August. And I think that in general, our church is... how can I put this, is known for and has attracted people who care about the world around them. Uh, We want to do. We want to affect change in the neighborhoods, arenas, and systems around us. We want to make a difference. Uh, But in order to do that, we're convinced that a vibrant, sustaining connection to Jesus is the difference maker for a life of peace, joy, and sustaining connection. And so, To that end, today we're starting a new series. It's called Why I Love Jesus. Now that might sound simple, uh, but we're convinced that the beginnings of everything start in our hearts. And if our hearts are connected in a meaningful way to the person of Jesus, that creates something in us. uh, Something that has lots of energy, that has a lot of spiritual juice, that makes a difference in our whole lives. And that the things we're looking for in life, transcendence, you know, a life of peace, a life of something connected bigger, being connected to something bigger than ourselves, starts there. So today we're going to start a series where we're going to get to learn about our hearts and the hearts of the people in our church and how other people are meeting Jesus and the difference that it's making. In the book of Revelation, uh, the author, John, writes a letter of instruction to several churches. And one church is a church in Ephesus. It's a doer church. It's a church that gets things done. It's a church that cares about loving the city of Ephesus and making a difference there, seeing transformation. And John writes to this hardworking, zealous church and tells them, actually sort of chastises them for forgetting their first love. Some of you might know that story. And he encourages them to return to that love. He speaks to them about their hearts. Now, I grew up in the church, and I'm 43. I think I was probably in a church week one, and I have heard this passage preached so many times I can't even remember, right? And whether it was a message I was being given or the lens through which I heard that message, I think that's mixing metaphors. Lens is kind of seeing, ears are kind of hearing, but I think you get what I mean. Like the way that I heard it, I've often come away feeling like I need to get back to the way it was when I first began to follow Jesus at like the age of 18. You know, full of passion and happy ignorance. But I don't read it the same way anymore. Uh, The truth is, I'm not the same person I was when I was 18, 25 years ago. 
I want to love Jesus, and I want to love Jesus wholeheartedly. I feel like that's the difference maker and has been the difference maker in my life. And although I want that, I want to be, uh, have a trusting, simple, sometimes the Bible calls it childlike faith. I want it to be authentic. And it can't be for me the same as it was when I was 18. Because I'm not the same as I was when I was 18. And I'm going to argue today that that's not a bad thing at all. It's healthy and helpful and empowering. So today I'm going to do something I haven't done before. And this is kind of fun for me. We'll see if it's fun for you. I found a sermon that I preached on the heart from about 10 years ago. And today I'm going to go through that sermon and see if I still agree with what I said a decade ago or if my perspectives have changed to see if we might all be able to learn something about a vibrant love for Jesus that changes and even hopefully intensifies as we live real life. So if you're at the beginning of your faith, maybe you're running on high octane right now. It's all new to you. Your mind is blown. Great. Lean into that. That's, that's real. I'm going to tell you that at some point, you might need what I'm saying today. And it will be really helpful. So you log it in the databanks and pay attention. And if you've been after Jesus for a while, you're sort of a veteran. You've been trying to do this um, for a certain period of time. You probably need this right now. Let me give you a little background. So this is the first story we hear about a big figure in the Bible by the name of David. Probably heard of him. Maybe you haven't. David is going to become the greatest king in the history of Israel. Uh, he, he is met today by Samuel, the preeminent prophet of God during this time in history. And for years, Israel was led by leaders that God would raise up in key moments to lead them. And Samuel was the last of these great leaders. So Israel never had a king like the rest of the nations on the planet Earth. Instead, God was their king, and that was their perspective. But when they looked around at the other nations in the world, the Israelites said, we need a king. Because look, everyone else has one. And so God gave them what they wanted. He gave them the best-looking, most kingly person that has ever existed. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, it says about him. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Think like King Arthur. Prototype. Good-looking, swashbuckling, tall, buff, handsome, cool beard. I don't know. Just assuming. That's who they get, and his name was Saul. So Samuel anoints Saul king, but Saul turns against God and rejects, and so God rejects him as king. And this is where we start our story. There's more details, it's worth reading. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I've rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. 
Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by Samuel, but he said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They are still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So, as I look back over this old sermon of mine, uh, three questions sort of stood out to me that I think can help us check the status of our heart because I feel like this is the key. If this is going to be a year of reconnecting and renewal and meeting Jesus, I think that starts in here. Not even here, but here in our hearts. And the first question I think that's helpful to ask is, am I stuck? So in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now when I read this, it seems that it's not different from the experience that many of us have had already in life or will have someday that we get an idea in our minds of how things should go. If we do certain things, we should get certain results. When we don't get the results we expect, it tends to upset us. I mean, just think about a small thing. Think about the last time you put money into a vending machine and you didn't get the beverage or the snack that you were expecting. Some of you, you want to raise your fist to heaven. No, right? It's upsetting in those little small situations. We have certain expectations, certain hopes. So when we invest in particular ways in our lives, we expect to have certain results. If we go to school or learn a trade, if we pay our dues, we expect to advance in our careers, to make more money, to get promoted. If we're friendly, caring, funny, considerate, we expect people to like us and for friendships to develop. If we're faithful, loving, sacrificial, we expect our romantic relationships to be deep and fulfilling. And I think our expectations betray in us a sense that we have of order in the universe. For many of us, we expect God to honor our best efforts by blessing us. And for those of us who are considering faith or unsure of any order in the universe at all, we still expect that if we do the right thing, we'll get a good result. Even if in our own heads, even if philosophically, we don't really leave any room for an ordered universe, we can't help ourselves but be angry when we see injustice. It's not the way it should be. 
We all think these things. And I think there's no point in pretending that we don't. In fact, when we're really disappointed or hurt or suffer loss, it's perfectly okay to mourn our losses as if something was wrong or lost and feel those disappointments. If you remember from our passage, God says to Samuel, how long will you mourn? Not, why are you mourning? So God seems to leave room for Samuel to be upset. But he also doesn't want him caught in those feelings forever. And while I think it's very fair and healthy to think these things and feel this way, let me suggest that we don't want to get stuck there because if we do, we may miss out on the bigger and greater things that are actually happening around us. Now, let me pause here. So, this is where I'm reading along in my old sermon, and I'm pretty much tracking with where I was going 10 years ago. We don't want to get stuck. God doesn't want Samuel to get stuck. His disappointment isn't the whole story, but what I said next, I've rethought. You know, 10 years ago, reading this story, and as I said it then, I thought, quote, maybe it was time to move on for Samuel. You know, sometimes it is time to move on. I think particularly in the area of forgiveness, if someone has hurt you, it's important to let that go for yourself or it will burn a hole in your soul. You do have to let certain things go. You don't want to get stuck in unforgiveness and the pain that goes with that. But I've also found over the years that telling people to quote-unquote move on or quote-unquote get over it isn't usually helpful. In fact, often it's hurtful and it shows a real lack of empathy. So today I would say this. This would be my suggested answer to that question. Instead of get over it or move on, anticipate a new normal. It just seems that what I've seen occur over and over again in the lives of people is that the major disappointments in life are not things that go away or that you can just get over, as if you can go back to being the person that you were before the tragedy or the painful experience happened. Those losses are now a part of you. You can't go back to the way things were because you're not who you were before. But hopefully, we can experience eventually some redemption. That's really the story of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, someone who lived the perfect life. That's the theology around the life of Jesus, who didn't make any mistakes, yet at the end of his life was rejected, beaten, and left to die alone, except for two criminals, on a cross. That was part of Jesus' story. You can do everything right, be as faithful as you possibly can be, and end up on a cross. That's the story, isn't it? That's what happens. Now what, that's not the whole story. So what happens is that 
Resurrection comes after the death of Jesus. Redemption comes. But there's an interesting story with a person who's come to be known as Doubting Thomas. Some of you know this. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appears to his disciples. And there's one who had said, I won't believe it until I put my hand in the holes of his hand and in his side. So Jesus appears and he gives Thomas that opportunity. What's significant for us today is that Jesus is able to hold out his hands and they still have the scars. In his renewed, resurrected body, his healed self carries the scars of his greatest disappointment. It's part of him for eternity. The scars are never going away. There's a new normal for Jesus. Jesus is not the same person he was before the crucifixion. He carries scars. And the redemption, the resurrection that happened, didn't take the scars away. They became part of who he was and theologically even part of his glory. There's so many implications of the scars of Jesus. It shows us a God who suffers with us. Who has felt the sting of evil and loss and tragedy. Who can relate to us in any disappointment that we experience. The new normal is different. It recognizes that you've changed, that there's no going back to the way things were. But it's also hopeful. The new normal is full of new possibilities. The challenge and opportunity is to somehow find a way after tragedy to lean in and to trust Jesus. That's difficult. Because good things, and this is the hope, even redemption could be just around the corner. And it may not be tomorrow. It may take some time. But this, I think, is a way to return to your first love without pretending that everything has always been good. And this, I think, is what allows Samuel to mourn for Saul and dive back in and anoint the next king. Redemption is coming. Samuel will always have the experience of Saul's failure with him, but he'll see it in the light of the redemption of David, who will become Israel's greatest king. So I don't know that if you're in a difficult place or you've experienced something horrific or challenging, tragic, that you ever have to get over it. That's going to be part of who you are. And my hope is not that that will go away. That's not what I can promise you. But if you, we look at the story of Jesus... I think what we see is the hope and the possibility of redemption, renewal, and resurrection. On which the other side of you will be a different person than you were before it all happened. But hopefully a person who's renewed and can offer something in a new way. Next question, how do I view failure? Now, I pretty much still track with what I said on this point, which is good, right? It's like, I know most 
pastors tend to cringe when they think, what did I preach 10 years ago? So it's nice to read a point where I'm like, okay, there's something to this. Uh, and this is a tough, I think part of the reason I still track with this is because it's very difficult for me to do. Uh, and this is a tough one, I think, for anyone, but I suspect it's particularly tough for those of us who are still in our 20s or 30s, because most of us think whatever place we are in life, we should be making a difference. The main thing is to do something. We should be achieving. We should be affecting. We should be changing the world. And that is all well and good. I'm not knocking that. And here at Mosaic, we have a mission statement that says seeking to make our great city even better. And we're not waiting until we're super perfected and mature to lean into that. You can be an eight-year-old and lean into that. We're all about investing and seeing this city become an even better place. But here's what I'd like you to consider. What if the greatest change that's going on in your life right now isn't the change that you're affecting, but it's the change that's affecting you? There's a book by uh, Dr. J. Robert Clinton called The Making of a Leader, which has been really helpful for me. And He says a leader is just someone who influences. You don't have to have a particular title. You don't need to have a particular role. But Dr. Clinton studied the lives of hundreds of biblical, historic, and contemporary leaders to see if, if he could discern the key ingredients to leadership. And here's what he determined. He said, there's a fundamental principle that I've discovered. And this is it. Leadership is a lifelong process. Meaning, we spend most of our lives becoming leaders, not being leaders. Further, we develop as leaders by paying attention to significant life events. Now, those can be positive, like trainings we receive, uh, service opportunities, successes, joyful occurrences, divine appointments, supernatural events. Those are all positive things that can help us develop. But negative things, he say, can also like crisis, conflict, rejection, tragedy, disappointment, failure, mistakes, sin, moral failure. But he says, how we progress isn't about our experiences as much as how we respond to those experiences. Do we reflect on them and learn as we go? I have a friend, Brian Hausman, who wrote a summary of this book, and he said this, the discipline of reflection is more important than the experience itself. A positive experience could stunt our growth if we neglect to ask ourselves what we've learned from it. And a big mistake or even a moral failure can lead us forward in our leadership development as long as, through reflection, we learn from it. It's not about getting it right the first time. It's about developing a habit of treating every significant event in our lives as a learning opportunity. So my suggested answer to this question is, I can learn from this. Now, if you're in the middle of a tragedy or difficult thing in particular, that's not always helpful to try and assign meaning to it in the moment. That can actually do more harm than good. But the hope is, over time, through reflection, there are things that we can learn, we can develop through experiences. Now, for those of us still on the beginning end of the life spectrum, say in your 20s or 30s, are you willing to accept that although you certainly can make an impact now, that the biggest impact that God wants to do in your life during this season might be to impact you? This could all just be prep for your 50s. And if you're there now, in your 40s or your 50s, 
Have you stopped reflecting and learning along the way? I think Dr. Clinton's study showed that many people get stuck when they think they're done discovering new things. Even Samuel, who was well on in life, still learns a life-changing lesson in this story that led to his greatest act of anointing a new king, David. So if we don't want to get stuck, we have to continue to learn and be open to change in our lives. And the third question, how do, we, how do I view myself? In verse 7 it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Speaking of Eliab. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So my suggested answer here is the most important thing is the heart. Now here, 10 years ago, I think I was onto something, but also missed something important. Sorry if you were here then. Here's what I think I got. A heart set on Jesus enables what I'm calling today transcendence. What do I mean by that? I mean the experience of life that we're hoping for, connection to something bigger, connection to God that affects the way we experience everything else in our life. Peace, joy, satisfaction, purpose, belonging, all of those things. Transcending uh, the normal and living something beautiful. God isn't basing his blessings in our lives on what we would consider our strengths versus our weaknesses or our successes or failures. If I'm understanding this correctly, God looks first at our hearts and he notices our intentions. He sees what our love and first love is. And when we set our hearts on him, he responds and we can connect to what life is all about. We can connect to Jesus And David is famously referred to several places in Scripture as, quote, a person after God's own heart. The prototype of someone who loves God is David. And he makes some terrible mistakes along the way, but that's true of his most innermost part of who he is. And we see in this passage, after God points out that he looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. It says, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. David lived a transcendent life, albeit imperfect, connected to God, who was his first love. And this type of acceptance and experience can be powerful in your life. If you know that you're accepted by God before any success or failure, that he sees your heart first, it enables you to take big risks without your sense of worth being on the line. You can move across the country as a 27-year-old punk from Chicago and for some reason think people are going to gather around a new church that you're starting because, I don't know, you're leading it? I don't know how that worked. But you know, that's what 33-year-old Brad was tapped into. I can go for it. I can dive in. If it doesn't work, I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. I still have value. But here's what I missed. Somehow, I think, in my life, that turned into a quote-unquote get-out-of-guilt-free card for me. As if, if I had the right intentions, the results of my actions, even as they impacted others, even negatively, couldn't be held against me. I did my best. And therefore, God is pleased. 
I don't see things that way anymore. Intentions don't make everything okay. And David found that out in the worst way, if you read the entire story of his life. Instead, I'd like to say this. A heart set on Jesus enables transcendence and transformation. There's amazing Christian theology called new creation. And the idea is that God is interested in reforming us from the inside out, not the outside in. And throughout the ancient Hebrew scriptures, it's prophesied that God wants to put a new spirit in people, a transforming spirit that will make all things new. And the hope of Christian scriptures is that this spirit is now available through what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And I take that to mean that God sees us in Christ, being, yes, we are accepted. There is no judgment. He sees the new creation in our heart, but recognizes that this creation is on the move in us, bringing transformation to every part of our lives. Essentially, we're in process. And this, I think, is where learning from our mistakes and failures, like Clinton suggests, is so important. We can use the acceptance of God to stay stuck. Or we can lean into the spirit that's available to us to listen to where we need to change, grow, and transform. Instead of, and I'm guilty of this, oh well, what a terrible response, right? And all too common shrugging off of my own responsibility. Instead of that, we can reflect, we can listen, and we can grow under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So, how do we return to our first love without getting stuck? Be prepared for a new normal. Don't think that you have to just let things go or get over it. Sometimes you have, they're going to be incorporated in who you're becoming. Second, learn from our failures. This is something that I struggle with. I don't like to think about what's gone wrong. I don't even like to think about what went well. I just think, whew. But that's a recipe for not growing. And third, remember our acceptance in the middle of our loss and transformation. So even as we're growing, it is true that God sees your heart before any outward thing. Anything you would try and put up to show how cool you are or what a great person you are. When those break down, that's not the thing that God was most paying attention to anyway. He does accept you. It's not an excuse to let things go, to shrug your shoulders. They don't work out. But it is a comfort when things don't work out because he does still love you and accept you. Let's pray.